Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. In this episode of the Artelligence Podcast, curator and art advisor Elena Platinova takes over the microphone to interview Stefania Bortolami, who represents artists like Jonathan Meese, Tom Burr, and Daniel Byrne. Stefania has just moved her eponymous Bortolami Gallery from Chelsea to Tribeca after a seven-year sojourn on West 20th Street. Um, thank you for joining us, Stefania. You're welcome. I was in Chelsea longer than that because before I was on 25th Street and um, when we opened a gallery in 2005. And before that, I was working at Gagosian in Chelsea the last couple of years. Before that, on Madison Avenue. But, so yeah. that's sort of home for you by now. Chelsea's been home for a long time. And it's changed enormously since I started working there, which was 2003. It's, you know, really different, uh, <laughs> a different area altogether. Do you feel like it's turning into this um, high-end art shopping mall with franchises of international heavy theater galleries? And maybe that's part of the reason um, you didn't want to stay in that area? Um, yes. I mean, beside the fact that the galleries, the mega galleries are really taking over, taking more and more spaces. Um, and you know, the, these humongous spaces. Um, there's also the fact that a lot of tech companies are moving in, a lot of condos. So what was before half derelict and half renovated warehouses doing incredible art shows has become high-end offices, high-end condos and high-end galleries. And um, I mean, I hope I am a high-end gallery, just like every other gallery should be. But um, it felt that it was not, um, I don't know, my gallery felt dwarfed there. I feel if you're, if you're a medium gallery, you're a small space compared to those humongous spaces and blockbusters, incredible exhibitions as well, or a Gagosian, or a Pace, it, you know, the Rothko show. You know, what am I doing next to the Rothko show? <laughs> or Picasso show, or the McCracken, the Felix Gonzalez stores, incredible. I mean, I'm so happy that those exhibitions exist and that are so generously put together by the galleries. It just felt that my place was not there. Well, speaking of the size and the um, scale of the project, you moved from a 4,000 square feet space. Yeah, 6,000. To 6,000 uh, on 20th Street. And this new space in Tribeca uh, is 9,000 square feet. Baby steps. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you don't have that ambition. So do you feel like you are, or it's important for your artists and um, your audience to have that, for you to have this larger space and a more ambitious project? Well, this space in terms of gallery space is the same as in terms of exhibition space, it's the same as uh, before. I have more, in the lower floor, there's more what we call services. So there's bigger storage, there is a photography room, 
and then, well, kitchen bathrooms and whatnot. But, um, you know, we are primary gallery, so we represent artists. Um, our business is further their career. It's not putting up shows, museum shows. So, you know, it's important for an artist to, uh, you know, to, for us to be able to store their work and to have enough exhibition space to um, um, develop their discourse, but not feeling that they have to, you know, do a Whitney retrospective every time they do a show. And that's the difference, I think, between what I feel that my, I would like my gallery to be and the mega galleries, um, the mega galleries in all effect took over part of the job of the museums. Um, so an artist doesn't go, doesn't do a show in one of those humongous spaces to experiment. I'm still hoping that in my gallery an artist has the freedom to experiment and yes, maybe make mistakes. You know, it's okay. It's through mistakes, things happen and uh, it, it, sh it shouldn't be 100% resolved. Um, I would like it to still be somewhere where, you know, doubts arise and uh, daring can happen. I don't think that any artist goes to, you know, Gagosian 21st Street and dares to find, to do something new. And There's no room for mistake there, right? <laughs> well, speaking of daring, um, a lot of daring places are um, opening up on the Lower East Side and there has been an exodus of galleries from Chelsea there, even some blue chip ones. Uh, why did you pick Tribeca uh, rather than, for instance, the Lower East Side? Well, the Lower East Side started a long time ago and um, I don't know, it, uh, it just didn't feel, I mean, it's already kind of a little bit overcrowded and I, I think that the spaces there are a bit more difficult. Yeah. And frankly, I don't know, when I knew that I, my building on 20th Street, well, my building, I wish it was my building. <laughs> you know, the building where I was renting the ground floor space in, on 20th Street was going to be um, torn down to become, I think, 15-story office building. Um, then I started looking and considering everywhere in Manhattan and, um, uh, you know, uh, by going by elimination, I decided that I still wanted to be downtown and I was open to maybe stay, you know, go sort of lower Chelsea, maybe close, closer to the Whitney or something. Then I, frankly, I met with a real estate agent and they showed me on paper this space and already on paper, I fell in love with it. And I came to visit it and I knew that I was going to take it. I went to see a couple of other spaces just because. <laughs> but then I knew that, that this was it. You know, it was, the, the potential was immediately apparent. Because after so many years of a white box and industrial um, space, I felt that for myself, wanted to be in something a little bit more historical. I like the fact that it's got a little bit of the Soho spaces, but not, it's not Soho. You know, it's, it's got some architectural features without trying to go back to a nostalgic past. Mm -hmm. So it feels a little bit like the future, but linked to the past. Both, both the past and the future. Well, speaking about um, the place, it has a lot of character still, and 
Um, let's talk about your fantastic inaugural show at, at the new space with your key artist, um, Daniel Buren, um, who's arguably one of France's most admired and influential artists, who has had uh, an innumerable amount of exhibitions worldwide. Um, he participated in the Venice Biennale more over 10 times. Um, he took part in three documentaries. He won the Golden Lion in Venice in uh, 1986. Um, he has had some retrospectives, uh, major retrospectives. Hundreds. <laughs> well, let's just Well, actually, that. he says that he can never have a retrospective because his work is um, in situ. So, therefore, a retrospective can never really happen. It can only happen through documentation. Um, that's why books become his retrospective. Uh, but he does exhibitions in museums, or has done exhibitions in museums, you know, thousands of times, and every time it develops something that it relates to the space. Which is the case this time as well, and um, um, this loving nickname that the art community gave um, Daniel is the Stripe Guy. Um, and it's sort of um, very heavily employed in the current show, so could you please tell us a little bit more about the nickname and how it maybe came to be, and um, about the concept of the show. Well, strangely, Daniel started as a painter, um, pretty classical painter, who, for some maybe psychological reason that uh, I'm not going to analyze, um, in 63-64 was buying sheets from the market. He was very poor. Um, Jewish family in uh, Paris, um, buying sheets from the market, painting stripes. The first thing he would do is would paint stripes um, of different colors and, and then paint uh, on top like a uh, sort of a Matissean cutout um, and form shapes on top of the painted stripe. And he did that for a couple of years until in one day seems like a legend, but it's, it is actually true. He went to the market to buy his sheet and he fell on this awning material that was striped. And he had this, he said, well, I don't need to paint the stripe anymore. I just have the stripe <laughs> and then I can paint on top. And literally, and that was December 1965. Um, since then, he has never done one work without the stripe. Um, taking over this 8.7 centimeter stripe that was an industrial stripe used for only material, gave him an amazing freedom to, within 10 years, abandon painting altogether and starting making architectural um, features, um, sculptures, installations. Well, it doesn't use the, the, word, the, word, uh, the word installation, but you know, to take over space, architectural spaces through his work and it is like he can do anything as long as there is an 8.7 centimeter stripe, it's a Daniel Buren, <laughs> which is something amazing. It, it's, it's a little bit like Ryman. He can do anything as long as it's white, it's Ryman. Because <laughs> <laughs> visible strokes, that works. <laughs> Sometimes they're not even visible, the, the, the strokes at Ryman. But it's um, a uh, yeah, freedom through constraint, which is 
very often the case. You give yourself a limit, you give yourself a, a tool. He calls it a visual tool. Um, and he has, you know, covered Frank Gehry buildings, um, you name it. Mm-hmm. Whatever he can think of, he will do it. <laughs> well, in, in this show, he partially covered your building mm-hmm. as well, right? So um, the installation, oh, he doesn't like the use the word installation. The exhibition. Uh, exhibition comprises that facade mm-hmm. side, and then there is a row of columns that goes along the hallway into the main space, and all of these columns are covered by colors on the three facets, and the fourth side is covered with this signature 8.7 centimeters of 3.4 inches um, stripes alternating black and white. And then there is uh, the skylight, uh, right, with the um, radiant, beautiful colored filters. Um, that's the final part of it. Um, it's very visually appealing, right? It's very minimalist at the same time. Um, but is there a certain political dimension to the show. The reason I'm asking is because, you know, Daniel has had over 180 exhibitions in the U.S., exhibitions in the States, and um, many of his pieces in their titles do refer to the U.S. and to the country. You yourself have just had a um, group show, the last show in your former space, that was highly political. It was called the University, University. voila, <laughs> and um, I believe it did bring attention, attention to the current political climate, uh, and there was a piece by Daniel Buren in it. What about this exhibition? Um, well, Daniel is a highly political being. He's uh, most definitely left-leaning, um, but. I don't think that you can describe his art as political as such. Um, he, um, not, in a, not, not in content, I mean, the, in a way, looking at art and um, letting yourself be transported by all the significance of art is a kind of a political statement because it's a, um, well, especially right now here in this country, you know, just being cultural is a, is a political. To be separated from <laughs> exactly, um, but also in his country because uh, you know Marine Le Pen is another one who is not so pro culture, um, so there is that political stance. But otherwise, it's not really you know he's not a political artist. It doesn't have. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't have um, narrative that is related to. In the 60s, the fact that it was a rebelling against the status quo of French painting, and it was in 1968, the famous manifesto with BMPT, that was a but the 60s were a political moment. You know, now uh, to, be po- to be political, you have to. Um, talk about race, identity, and he has, he never talks about the fact about being Jewish, not because, it's just not practicing and it's not part of who he is. It, I think 
probably from generation they were not practicing Jews. Um, so even that question of identity is, is taken off the map. You know, it's very interesting that you mentioned it uh, because when I came to the opening of the show, um, I couldn't help having this impression um, that what, where you stand in the room and what point of view you're taking there um, has, uh, really determines what you see. And when I went to the very back of the gallery and I looked at this row of stripes that you see because all the radiant color disappears and you only see the sides with the stripes, it does look like this wall of stripes or almost like a gate, maybe even a prison gate. And in that respect, um, I couldn't help thinking about the American, the Mexican-American border and about all these walls that are being erected right now. But that's the your extrapolation. <laughs> he was not yeah. thinking about that. Um, he was thinking of uh, um, taking advantage of the fact that nobody knows this space, including ourselves. I mean, I never saw this space finished and empty because we were finishing it as the columns starting to come in. So I never stood in the gallery and say, oh, okay, all the, all the walls are done and are white and the floor. And so um, he just wanted to make a show which would be disorienting. He said, Stefania, made you a favor because people will have to come back at least for another show to see exactly. what the space looks like. It's ingenious. It prompts you to see the following exhibition to compare. Exactly, exactly. So the columns um, that are covered, I mean, okay, so Chelsea does not have columns. That's why people moved to Chelsea. They wanted to get rid of the columns both in the front of the building or in, especially the ones in the middle of the building. This space has got columns, both at the front and um, this row of columns going in the middle of the space. Um, so he decided to work on the columns. And um, he gave us this signifier outside, just a, the classic 8.7 centimeter black stripe on, on all the columns outside. It also gives you a clue of what is going to go on inside. We had to take a permit with the city and Although the exhibition is only a couple of months, they gave us a permit until 2021, which made me very oh, happy fantastic. because I, I think I will keep them until then. You know, hopefully we'll become, oh yeah, the gallery with the stripes outside, you know. Kind the stripe guy and the stripe gallery. And the stripe gallery. <laughs> and, I mean, I think it's one of those things that no artist of my stable will uh, object to, I hope, because he is a very respected artist and you know, they're all happy to, to, to show um, with Daniel, in a way. Every show will have to contend with those stripes. Um, it's also such a formal um, element that it doesn't, as, because there is no narrative, because there is no... It's very neutral, uh, in a way. Very neutral, so it kind of goes with, with, with everything. In terms of color as well, it didn't touch the color of the facade, it just added the black. Um, and inside, he gave us this you know, he made a grid, a grid, diagonal grid, starting with existing columns and uh, um, on both sides, you know, from left to right and from right to left. And uh, wherever the, the lines met, he placed a column. And it, 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 it does give you a 
uh, a clue to figure his method out because he left one column empty of uh, the, the, the covering and then he left the capitals on the existing columns empty. So if you give it a, a five minutes thought or 30 seconds or you figure it out, um, but otherwise you go like, ah, what's going on? Why are there so many columns in this, <laughs> this space? Is this is forest of columns. This is not a good gallery space. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I was wondering, which of these columns will go and now understandably everything except for the middle row. Right. And then um, will anything else stay? Let's say the filters on the skylight or they... No, that's impossible. I don't know if you see now and I hope that anyone who listens to the podcast will come on a sunny day in the morning. It's incredible. And we did not know it, and neither did Daniel. I mean, he, he hoped there's always a halo that comes with when there is daylight outside, but um, the skylight was totally rotten and covered by uh, tar. So it was totally blackened. And we didn't know until when the skylight, the, the new one was put in, which was a week before we opened the show. Um, if we had any direct sunlight, but this, the direct sunlight is so strong, and so you know this classic New York clear days, it looks like it's painted. The back wall or the floor looks—it's so vivid. It looks like it's painted. It's extraordinary. I mean, we all went; our jaw <laughs> fell the first time we saw it. You know, <laughs> including Danielle's. Now we all have to come and see it again during the daytime. So um, we cannot keep that because it's too much of a interference, interference with everything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the columns too uh, made me think about another very early exhibition that um, Danielle Buren had at the Guggenheim Museum. It was an international group show um, with um, a group of American artists in 1971. And it's sort of notorious. How internationally was because I think Danielle was the only non-American. Well, the the end of the story is even sadder then because <laughs> his contribution was the a banner that was striped and it ran um, along the whole space. It covered the rotunda, um, which sort of eliminated the perk of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture where you can see uh, all the pieces across from you at, on different levels of the museum um, and some American artists, Donald Judd um, included, uh, protested because it, they asserted blocks their art. Um, the banner was taken out the night before the opening. Yeah. And I feel like maybe this show is a retort because well, no, you already did the retort at the columns. Google. Right. <laughs> you cannot dismantle. That's true. That, that is true. That is true. There are no other artists to complain. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, because of that show, there, were, there was a, a letter of complaint and then there was a letter of support. Mm. It was signed by more artists and the letter of complaint. And the artists that signed the letter of support became his lifelong friends. And to this day, um, you know, Lawrence Wiener, Carl Andre, um, well, other artists come to the openings, but of that show, the, the ones that are still alive, Solewit was a close friend, and um, they usually come to the dinners 
they're, they're still very, very close friends. And, uh, well, I don't know, if maybe if would have patched it up with Flavin and uh, <laughs> Jan, but they didn't have a chance. <laughs> it didn't happen. Um, the um, exhibition, uh, it's called In Situ, um, which suggests that it's unique, but your press release says that it can be um, done in other spaces as long as it changes according to the location. So the question stands, is it for sale this way? And then maybe an iteration of it is, if, if not the actual um, show. And as a collector, would I be able to commission a separate installation from Daniel? How, how does this work? Yes, uh, of course, the, uh, Daniel's main way of, you know, um, paying for his bills is through commissions. Um, so a uh, collector, a space, a museum um, commissions something and he comes up with a project and then the project happens hopefully and, and everyone gets paid and the institution has a work of Daniel Biren. But there is also, this, these works are in situ, they're done for this gallery, but as you said, there could be an iteration of the same works done for another space. Um, so they would have, you know, he would have to see what the space is and, and, and make this, the same principle. So diagonal lines and the same three colors. It's important that the three primary colors, because the three primary colors plus black and white make every color on the spectrum. In the spectrum. Yeah. And with every color in the spectrum, you can paint or imagine everything in the world. So, you know, it's a, the, 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 each column is the universe, maybe, <laughs> you know, if you want to be a little poetic. Um, it's a whole galaxy, then. It's a whole galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, yes, the, the, the exhibition is for sale. You, collector can buy a group of columns, you know, it would have to be a discussion, you know, it's not, you can't take it and bring it home as it is, you know, <laughs> there is some modifications to, modifications to be made, <laughs> for sure. Well, speaking of collectors, um, is there a certain type, principal type of collector for um, Danielle's work? And are American collectors as receptive to his over as, say, the Europeans, or not quite? I think at this point, um, Daniel has a worldwide appeal. He's very, um, he's, he's done countless um, commissions and exhibitions in Japan, and he also was the recipient of the Premium Imperial um, in Japan, which is a very, very high, um, premium <laughs> to, be, to be honor to receive um, and he has done exhibitions in Africa and South America everywhere I mean it's there, there's something about his um, work because it's so formal um, intelligent beautiful and more recently also very colorful that is appealing in a universal way it, there is you, I guess you can decide that you don't like it because you only like, you know, political art, or you only like, you know, 
art made by women, or do you see what I mean? But otherwise, what is that not to like? You know, it's every work, every installation is totally different. Every installation is a visual experience and a physical experience. In this one in particular, you, this, yesterday we had a photographer come in to photograph it and he said, well, you know, there is nothing that I can do to make it look like if you're here. Because every step you take, the, it changes 360 degrees. So even a video is, you know, you would have to have a really long video to go up and down every... And one thing that also I realized looking at this exhibition is if you stand in one corner of the gallery, you see only um, the black and white stripes and the blue, sort of very long alleyway of, of blue. And then on the other side, of opposite corner, you have the same view but with yellow. And I, I was really puzzled or interested in seeing that the power of color, because the side of blue, it looks stern, there's some rigidity, there is some uh, gravitas. And then on the yellow side, it's happier and it's whimsical and it really color changes the mood and how you think about the world around you, which is obvious, but it, you don't perceive it as clearly as in this exhibition you know, on a daily basis. Yeah, that's, that's the beauty of the show. Um, you have to come and see it and experience it not only visually, you, that you could in photographs, but physically, it challenges you. You have to take a pause outside to look at the facade. You have to walk through diagonally, straight to the side. You have to look up to see the skylight. So it really is an experience that you have to live through, not just believe our word um, for it, take our word for it. Um, we all are looking forward to seeing the next show and how the space looks without the columns. It's so hard to... Me too. <laughs> uh, what is coming next? We are doing a show with... Um, um, okay, so beside the gallery, we have embarked on this other nuts project called Artist City, in which um, we rent a space uh, somewhere in America, and with an artist, I mean, for an artist, but the decision of what and where the space is is taken with the artist. And then the artist, you know, we rent it for a year because that's usually how long the lease is. And, and the artist uh, develops an, an exhibition or something else. Um, there are some surprising twists that are going to happen in, in, in the future. And by the way, Cecily is doing one with us. But, and we're starting to do it also with artists that are not of the gallery. But um, one thing that is immediate um, is Tom Burr from the gallery doing something in uh, New Haven in the Marcel Breuer building, which sits in the parking lot of the IKEA in New Haven. And it's been closed to the public or to anyone since uh, 1999. And before that, it was um, a, fa a Pirelli factory tire factory and before that was an Armstrong tire factory and that's for whom the, the, the people that commissioned Marcel Breuer um, was factory and offices. Um, so he, uh, the, Tom just finished the installation of this amazing exhibition that will be hopefully open to the public very soon. We are 
dealing with a fire marshal, we were there, and then the last minute they pulled the permit for something that did not happen, but it's, it's going to happen. In, um, you know, in conjunction with this exhibition, he has uh, done a series of bulletin boards, which are his classic um, way of doing wall works, which are basically a piece of wood with things attached to it, and, are, and it, they have a narrative. So we're showing these bulletin boards of Tom in the summer with um, works that uh, he and Andrea Zitel chose of Andrea to go with it. Andrea Zitel is not an artist of the gallery, but she's very involved with um, this um, project in Joshua Tree in the desert. So it's a site-specific project, and because the bulletin boards are about another site-specific project, there is, a, there is a, a conversation there. Also, Tom used to work with um, very cult gallery, American Fine Arts. Uh, Colin Deland, the owner of American Fine Arts, was married to Pat Steer, uh, to Pat Hearn. <laughs> and, um, and Andrea was working with Pat Hearn, they're the same generation. It, it, so that's what we're presenting, basically. Andrea Zitel and Tom Burr. So you are expanding outside of this new space and into the world. Um, but the space itself is beautiful and I really hope it will be the beginning of another wonderful adventure and series of uh, fabulous exhibitions. Thank um, you, thank you. I hope that more galleries will come this way. Yeah, there are some empty spaces and the spaces are beautiful. That's an open call right there. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us and thank you Stefania for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 